So we're continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians this morning. And as I said, we're looking particularly at verses 13 to verse 16. And this section follows on the heels of uh, Paul's glorious exposition of the gospel uh, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And that follows on the heels of... uh, Uh, exposition of the gospel, a glorious exposition of the gospel in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. Each of those sections is looking at the gospel from a distinct point of view and highlighting aspects of the gospel uh, uh, that we might miss if we didn't look closely. And in between those two is a prayer that the Ephesians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That's quoting from chapter 1 and verse 18. In between those two expositions of the gospel, Paul prays that the Ephesian Christians would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know three things, the hope to which He has called them, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. And so, um, Paul has prayed that, and then he says, In chapter 2, verse 11, therefore, remember, he's coming back to this idea of heart knowledge. And he's he's kind of going back and forth between between doctrine, strictly speaking, and the penetration of that doctrine into the hearts of the Ephesian Christians. So he gives them some glorious doctrine in Ephesians 1, 3-14 and says, basically, I pray that this would get into your hearts brothers and sisters, that you would grasp this at the heart level. And then he goes back and talks about some more doctrine proper. And then again, he's coming back and saying, think about these things, meditate on these things, remember these things, that these things might get right down into your hearts. And that's the thrust of what he's doing, even as he expounds more doctrine in Ephesians chapter 2. He wants the Ephesian Christians to be reading his letter, as we talked about last week, not merely as an attorney might read a document, namely to know the sense of it, but as an heir might read uh, a will or something, that he has an interest in it, that he has a share in it. In other words, Paul wants the Ephesian Christians not to merely hear all this gospel talk as the story of redemption, but he wants them to hear all this gospel talk as their story of redemption. And so he says, remember, this is how God dealt with the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And this is how God is dealing with you Gentiles now. In order that they might read themselves into the story of redemption. And we who are Gentiles ought to do the same thing as we read this. We ought to look and see how is it that God has dealt with us as non-Jews from the beginning of Genesis Uh, up to this point in history. And what is He doing now in Christ Jesus uh, with us Gentiles? This is the context of the passage that we're looking at today. Last week, we saw that in the Old Testament, God dealt primarily with the Jews in a gracious manner. Remember, we looked last week, He didn't deal unjustly with the Gentiles, right? In allowing them to be uh, in a state of separation from Christ, as verse 12 says, in allowing them to continue in alienation from the commonwealth of Israel, verse 12, in allowing them to remain strangers to the covenants of promise, in allowing them to remain without hope and without Himself, 
God wasn't dealing unjustly with the Gentiles in the Old Testament. He wasn't dealing graciously with them. That is, He wasn't giving them uh, more than they deserve, as it were. But He wasn't dealing unfairly with them. We saw that all men, since the fall of Adam into sin, are condemned in Adam and inherit a corrupt nature from him. And so all of these Gentiles in the Old Testament were guilty and God allowed them to perish in their guilt. But thanks be to God. In verse 13 we read, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we kind of stopped there last week and we just said, isn't it amazing? God doesn't owe us a gospel. He doesn't owe us Gentiles a gospel. In fact, strictly speaking, until He made any promises, He didn't even owe the Jews any gospel. When Adam plunged the human race into sin, He didn't owe the human race a gospel. And so thanks be to God that in the Old Testament, He revealed Himself in covenants of promise and types and shadows and promised the Messiah to the Jews. And isn't it great that now, by grace, God has brought us Gentiles near and has uh, given us the opportunity to know Him and to repent of our sins and come to faith in this Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? We kind of stopped there last week. And I said that this morning we would look at the manner in which the blood of Christ brings Gentiles near. Because that's exactly what it says in verse 13. You, that is you Gentiles, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So how is it that the blood of Christ has brought Gentiles near? That's what's particularly in focus this morning. The the big idea of today's message Uh, It could come from verse 14 if we want to use scriptural language. That God has made us both one. That is Jews and Gentiles. God has made Jews and Gentiles one. And we're going to unpack that and unpack how it is that the blood of Christ makes Jews and Gentiles one. But before we do that, I want to kind of start actually with verse 16. And that's the simplest idea in this passage. So I want to clear the simplest idea away, and then I want to focus in on verses 14 and 15 for the rest of the message. Verse 16 is a a simple idea, an idea that many of us, if not all of us, are familiar with. And this idea is that Christ Jesus reconciles both Jews and Gentiles to God through the cross. You've heard that before. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We don't have to figure out whether someone's a Jew before we preach the gospel to them. We don't have to figure out whether someone's a Gentile before we preach the gospel to them. We don't have to do DNA tests and ancestry tests to see if anyone, if the person in question qualifies. We preach the gospel to every tribe and language and people and nation on this earth because Christ Jesus came, as Revelation says, to ransom for Himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation on this earth. And so this idea in verse 16 is simply that anyone, Jews and Gentiles, who wants to be reconciled to God must go through the cross to be reconciled to God. That they must look away from themselves, away from their own merit, 
away from their own law keeping, away from anything that they might bring in their hands to impress God. And they must look wholly, entirely, completely upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world at the cross. That's what verse 16 is saying. That God is reconciling us both, Jews and Gentiles, to Himself in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, in transitioning to our next point, right, that's, a, that's, that's an aspect of the gospel that we hear regularly, that we're very familiar with. Uh, but in transitioning to our next point, I want you to notice this. It says that God is reconciling us both, that is Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross. In one body through the cross. Now, this is not referring to the physical body of Jesus in this verse. We know that because it would be redundant to say that. Because it says already a few verses earlier uh, that in verse 14 it says that Christ has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So that's referring to Christ's body. So it would just be redundant to say again, in His body. Uh, And so that sort of should lead us away from that sense of body in verse 16. But secondly, Charles Hodge points out that it doesn't say through one offering of His body, but it says through His body. And so that's actually just referring to two different things. Offering uh, would be the noun as opposed to body. And so that's not referring to that. What it's saying is that He is reconciling us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God together in one body or as one body. In other words, as one people, Jews and Gentiles together are being reconciled to God through the cross. That's the sense of in one body in that section. And that's um, a good segue into our next point here. What we see in this passage before us in verses 13 to 16 is not only the aspect that God is reconciling all men to Himself through Christ Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, every tribe, language, people, and nation to Himself through the cross. But a big theme of these few verses is that God is reconciling Jews and Gentiles to one another through the cross. And so, though it's absolutely true that God is reconciling Jews and Gentiles to Himself through the cross, it's also important to note that God is reconciling Jews and Gentiles to one another through the cross. And this is an aspect of the Gospel that we're less familiar with. This is an aspect of the Gospel that, uh, frankly, is underemphasized Uh, and or misunderstood and or sometimes even completely ignored. Uh, And we ought to see that it's a biblical idea. We ought to draw it out of Scripture and uh, believe it and and work through it and keep it in our minds when we think about the Gospel, when we think about the way that God is dealing with the human race. God uh, has reconciled Jews and Gentiles to one another by the blood of Christ. How has He reconciled Jews and Gentiles to one another? The first thing we see is by bringing Gentiles near. And this is a bit of an overlap with last week. Right? Look at verse 13. 
They were, all of these things, far away, right? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So they were far from Christ, far from Israel, far from the covenants of promise, far from hope, and far from God. But verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off to all of those things, have been brought near implicitly to all of those things. Those who once were far off from Christ have now been brought near to Christ. Those who once were far off from the commonwealth of Israel have now been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. Those who were far off from the covenants of promise have now been brought near to the covenants of promise. Those who were far off from hope have now been brought near to hope. Those who were far off from God have now been brought near to God. That is the thrust here. The Gentiles have been brought near to Christ in that now Christ is preached to the Gentiles. We talked about last week how this proclamation of a Messiah, both in terms of explicit prophecy, like something like Isaiah 53, He shall bear our iniquities and so on and so forth. A seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Both in terms of explicit prophecies like that, but also through types and shadows. The priests, the lambs, so on and so forth. All of these things proclaimed Christ to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And God did not give those things to the Gentiles in the Old Testament. But now Christ is preached to every nation. And so in that sense... The nations, the Gentiles, have been brought near to Christ. The nations have been brought near, secondly, to the commonwealth of Israel. And this is a mind-blowing concept for many of us. In some sense, what Paul is saying is that the Gentiles have, in some sense, become Jews. Look at verse 19. He goes on to say, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Right? And you see, um, again, even just by the contrast, you once were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Well, what's the opposite of being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel? It's not being alienated, being part of the commonwealth of Israel. There is a sense in the way that the Scripture talks, that the Gentiles have become Jews. Those who have faith in Christ Jesus share in the fulfillment of the promises made to the Jewish people. A number of verses in the New Testament teach us these things, including Romans 2, 27-29, Philippians 3, verse 3, and there are a number of others. I just mentioned a couple for the sake of time. Jesus has brought the Jews near to the covenants of promise. That Gentiles now have as much of an interest, believing Gentiles that is, have as much of an interest in the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, and Davidic covenant as the Jews. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 7, for example. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The way that the New Testament talks about it is that Gentiles have been made to share in all of the promises, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants in and through Christ Jesus. In bringing the gospel to the Gentiles and bringing the fulfillment of the covenants of promise to the Gentiles in including the Gentiles in some sense in uh, His people, Israel, 
God has brought the Gentiles near to hope because now there is actually the potentiality of a future for Gentiles, whereas those guilty in Adam in far-off places who had never heard of a Messiah had no hope of calling on that Messiah and being saved, as Romans chapter 10 tells us. And in doing all of these things, Jesus has thereby brought the Gentiles near also to God. And so in, in that sense... Jews, Jesus has brought Jews and Gentiles together by bringing Gentiles near. Right? That's what we see in verse 13. That's one way in which God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles together in Christ Jesus. Then look at verse 14. God has reconciled Jews and Gentiles to one another by making Jews and Gentiles one. That's what it says right in verse 14. Christ Himself is our peace who has made us both one. One what? One new man is the most natural reading, comparing with verse 15. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So, God has made the Jews and the Gentiles one new man in place of the two. Let me try to explain that a little bit. Ultimately, as I said earlier in the service, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Everyone is either covenantally represented by Adam in the broken covenant of works, have inherited a corrupt nature from Adam and guilt from Adam, and thereby stand condemned in him. Or they are covenantally represented by Christ Jesus. Those who have placed their faith in him uh, have been regenerated, have been born again, have had their sins pardoned, are counted justified in God's sight in Christ Jesus. You're either in Christ Jesus or you're not in Christ Jesus. Or another way to say that biblically is you're either in Christ Jesus or you're in Adam. Ultimately, those are the only two types of people in the world. Obviously, we could sub-classify and subdivide people according to lots of different uh, demographics or categories um, but ultimately, at the top, right, or ultimately at the bottom, depending on the mental graph that your mind is making, either uh, at the top or at the bottom, as it were, ultimately there are really only two kinds of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. However, in the Old Testament, God dealt differently with Jews than with Gentiles. We've already driven that point home, so I don't need to belabor that. But that's what we see in verses 11 through uh, 11 and 12, that God dealt differently with the Jews in the Old Testament than with the Gentiles. God dealt differently with the Jews who were in Adam than the Gentiles who were in Adam. So even though these two ultimate categories remain, that there were those Israelites in the Old Testament uh, who were saved, who were, it's anachronistic to say, but Christians as it were, those who believed in the promise of the Messiah and those who didn't. And um, those who didn't, we could say, were in Adam. And those who did, we could say, were in Christ. In that they believed in the types and the shadows and the promises of the coming one. But God dealt differently with unbelieving Jews than He dealt with unbelieving Gentiles. In all of the ways that I mentioned earlier. And you can go and look again at verses 11 and 12 and see that. There were advantages that the natural Jew had, even if they were an unbelieving Jew in the Old Testament. 
because they had the proclamation of Christ to them. They had the covenants of promise. Uh, and thereby they had hope and they had access to God. Unbelieving Gentiles did not. In far off reaches of the earth, they would not have had these promises. They would not have had these covenants. This is what we see in verses 11 and 12. And so God in the Old Testament dealt differently with Jews than with Gentiles. So in that sense, there was an additional distinction at work in the Old Testament. Ultimately, there was Adam and Christ, even in the Old Testament. But secondarily, there also was a real, legitimate, God-ordained distinction in the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles. But now, our text says, God has eliminated that distinction in the way that He relates to Jews and Gentiles. How? We go on and we see, by breaking down in Christ's flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, there was a legitimate, as we've just seen, there was a legitimate divinely ordained distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the Old Testament. However, there was a sinful and an illegitimate response to that legitimate distinction by humans. Right? In other words, God distinguished in the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles. And what happened was that humans responded sinfully to that distinction. And so Gentiles began to hate Jews, and Jews began to hate Gentiles. And by the time uh, that Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, those lines of division uh, were firmly and clearly drawn, and animosity was going back and forth across that line of distinction. There was, though actually biblically, it hadn't been uh, prescribed in the... Uh, temple that Herod built, there was an outer court for Gentiles, and then there was an inner court for Jews. And um, uh, there was, um, that was probably in Paul's mind as he wrote this letter. On that, on that wall, there was signs every, at every intervals saying, any Gentile that crosses this barrier will be responsible for his own death, which will shortly thereafter ensue. In other words, if the Gentiles came across this wall, right, then they would be killed. Right? So they would, the Gentiles would come in a step further on pain of death. Um, there were some ways that humans ran with this legitimate, divinely ordained distinction in a way that was not prescribed by God and was therefore unbiblical. But nevertheless, there was hostility. And that's what we got to recognize. There was hostility not only between God and man, because God had just wrath against sin, but there was also uh, illegitimate hostility between Jews and Gentiles because God had made a distinction between the two. But Christ Jesus broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now again, Paul in his mind probably had that wall in Herod's temple in his mind as he writes about a dividing wall of hostility. But it's unlikely that the Ephesian Christians would have known that or at least that many of them would have known that or that that would be their immediate picture. So when Paul goes on to say he has broken down, he has abolished 
the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the most natural thing for the Ephesians would be to read that that law of commandments expressed in ordinances was the dividing wall of hostility. And I think that that's a fair and a right way to take it. Not only is this wall in the temple no longer legitimate in Christ Jesus, but more than that, uh, there is actually nothing divinely ordained that distinguishes Jew from Gentile any longer. So, what does it mean that Christ abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Well, John Gerstner points out, the moral law could not be meant here because it is a standard of conduct which all men have in common. It is a bond of union, not a wall of separation. We've talked in previous weeks about... um, classifying and categorizing different types of law that we read in the Mosaic Covenant. Moral, that which is for all people in all places at all times, including the Israelites. When we say moral law, that's what we mean. And then ceremonial law, that's that which was for the Jews in Old Testament Israel. And then civil law, that which was for Israel as a theocratic state. Gerstner helpfully points out that the moral law couldn't be meant here. It doesn't make sense to read this as saying, Christ Jesus has abolished the expectations that lie on all people everywhere in all places at all times and has thereby killed hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense on a whole lot of levels. Right? But Gerstner points out that the moral law is actually something in which all men have in common. The moral law doesn't distinguish Jews from Gentiles. It was just as wrong for the Babylonians to murder and commit adultery as it was for the Israelites to murder and commit adultery. It was just as wrong for the Ammonites to worship false gods as it was for the Israelites to worship false gods. And so the moral law actually did not distinguish Jew from Gentile. And the moral law, therefore, couldn't have been the dividing wall of hostility. And it couldn't be that law which God abolished in order to bring Jews and Gentiles together. That doesn't make any sense. And secondly, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago, if there is that which is right for all people everywhere at all times and in all places, if such a thing exists, obviously Jesus didn't abolish that. If there are moral absolutes, clearly Jesus wouldn't abolish moral absolutes. That doesn't make any sense. So that clearly can't be what is referred to here in this section. Um, So what did Christ abolish? Sinclair Ferguson is helpful. He says, Christ's atoning sacrifice fulfilled the symbolism of everything that took place in the temple and thus brought about the abolition of the, the law of commandments and ordinances. That is the whole mosaic system under which Old Testament believers lived. In other words, Christ... Uh, perfectly kept the moral law for the salvation of sinners. Christ kept the ceremonial law in addition to the moral law for the salvation of Jews who were under that additional obligation. And Christ brought all of the types and shadows to antitypical substance and fulfillment. In other words, all those priests of the Old Testament, Christ came and was the consummate priest. All of those sacrifices, Christ came and was the consummate sacrifice. That temple which showed us that we need to meet in a divinely ordained place with God. Christ Jesus is Himself now that place which God ordains that we should meet Him. 
Christ brought all of those pictures, types, shadows, prophecies to fulfillment. Uh, The Mosaic Covenant uh, was like scaffolding, as it were, that you put up around a building while it's being constructed. It's not to be there permanently. It's not part of the permanent structure, but it's there uh, uh, as a secondary aim of building towards and moving towards something else. And that's the function of the Mosaic Covenant in Scripture. All of these things were pointing us to Christ. And now that Christ has come, we can take down the scaffolding. There is now no need for Jews to be circumcised, for example. For circumcision is nothing. And neither circumcision, neither is uncircumcision anything, as the New Testament tells us. Right? For we are the circumcision, Philippians, right? who put no confidence in the flesh, but glory in Christ Jesus. Right? All of these things that are mosaic drop off. Fade away. There's actually no longer any divinely ordained distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is uh, the ceremonial law then drops off. Christ abolished that at the cross by fulfilling it, by taking shadow to substance. And so the ceremonial law drops off. Israel is no longer a theocracy, by the way, so the civil law has already dropped off. So it's the ceremonial law that is in view here. So commandments expressed in ordinances. Right, so think about just the way we put the emphasis here can really help us with the meaning. He has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What do you think of? You think of the Ten Commandments. What, but what if we say, He has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Then you think of the ceremonial law. Right? The, shell, the shellfish and the circumcision and so on and so forth. Right? You see how even just the words are somewhat ambiguous. But when we think about it theologically, And in the context of what the rest of the Bible says about these things, we see that the right way to understand this is that Christ abolished the ceremonial law. That which distinguished Jew from Gentile in the Old Testament. Christ abolished that by fulfilling it. By being the uh, fulfillment of all the promises. By being the substance of all the shadows. By being the antitype of all the types. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing with pointing towards, converges in Christ Jesus. And when He comes on the scene, everything that is truly and properly mosaic then, drops off. So just to drive home this point, Ferguson says, there were elements in Moses' ministry that were not uniquely mosaic. They belonged to God's original design and will for our lives. They had a particular form in the Moses' epoch, but they embodied the permanent purposes of God. This was obviously true of the Ten Commandments, Ferguson says. This is why Paul can say that Christ has fulfilled the law and yet scatter references to the Ten Commandments throughout his letters. For the commandments express God's original purpose for man at creation. So, in other words, again, just to reiterate the point, God did not, Jesus Christ on the cross did not abolish the moral law, that which is binding on all people everywhere in all places the things that were right and wrong for the Ammonites and the Babylonians and the Israelites and Gentiles to do are still right and wrong for the Ammonites and Babylonians and Israelites and Gentiles to do. But that which was Mosaic, that which was unique to Old Testament Israel, has dropped off. It's been abolished because Christ has brought it all to fulfillment. And so that is the way in which Uh, Gentiles have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. There were all of these obstacles in their way. Being Gentiles, not being circumcised, being far away from the temple, being far away from the priests. How are you going to go and worship God acceptably in His temple when you live on another continent? How are you going to do these things? How are you going to believe in Him of whom you've never heard, as Romans chapter 10 says? All of these obstacles stood in the way of Gentiles in the Old Testament. But when Christ shed His blood on the cross, the curtain of the temple was uh, torn from top to bottom, right? Because no longer is the special presence of God in that physical place, but the special presence of God is in a person, Christ Jesus. When Christ Jesus shed His blood on the cross, there was no more need to kill sheep because Christ Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Christ Jesus shed His blood on the cross, we don't need the Levitical priests anymore because Christ Jesus has entered into the true tent not made with hands on our behalf. Right? When Christ Jesus did all of these things, the Old Testament ceremonial law became redundant and obsolete. And there were therefore then no obstacles in the way for Gentiles any more than there were obstacles in the way for Jews. And so the message then becomes the same for Jews and Gentiles. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right? It's right there for Gentiles as it is right there for Jews. Nobody is specially privileged with access according to their physical, biological lineage anymore or because of the nation state in which they belong to. Now we know that there are unreached people groups in the world as we talked about last week. But there's a difference between God ordaining that we should go preach the gospel to them and us not having yet done so versus God uh, in the Old Testament as He did limiting largely, we talked about there were some exceptions, but largely limiting His interaction to the Jews in the Old Testament. God has explicitly told us that He is now uh, dealing with all the nations. And He has commanded us to go to all the nations, to make disciples of all the nations. And so in that sense, though there still may be someone today who, is, uh, who lacks gospel privileges by virtue of being born into a people group that hasn't yet heard, that's not a divinely appointed distinction. In fact, God has divinely appointed that they should no longer be underprivileged, but that we should go and preach to them. You see? And so in that sense, it's distinguishable from the plight of the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And so, this is how God brought the Jews and the Gentiles near. This is how He made them one. He removed all which was distinct about the Jews covenantally uh, at the cross by fulfilling all of the promises, types, and shadows in Himself and granting Gentiles equal access to the fulfillment of the promises that were made to the nation of Israel. So some applications of this. One is, again, as we said last week, hallelujah that we Gentiles have a gospel. Praise God that we who are here in Barbados, so far away from the nation of Israel, would have a Messiah preached to us. Amen. Some further applications. The first one... Uh, is that dispensationalism puts the big picture of the Bible together in the wrong way. 
down here in Barbados, dispensationalism is the predominant and prevailing view of most Christians. And so I recognize as I say that, uh, I may be getting myself into some hot water, but that's all right. Because it's right here in the scripture. I'm going to try to unpack that and unfold that. But dispensationalism puts the big picture of the Bible together incorrectly. Lewis Sperry Chafer, who is a renowned dispensational theologian, wrote in 1951, and I quote, The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to earth, with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven, with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. End quote. That is uh, really fundamental. That's not like an incidental part of the dispensational system. But this idea of uh, dual purposes and an earthly people and a heavenly people, uh, that God dealing a different way with the Jews uh, than dealing with, in a different way with the Gentiles is fundamental to the dispensational system. And as we have seen this morning, the way that the Bible speaks about Gentiles is that they have now become heirs to the promises that God made to Israel in Christ Jesus. That they have been brought near. More than that, that they have in a sense become Israelites. They are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but have become fellow citizens with the saints. That's chapter 2 and verse 19, which we'll look at again next week. Gentiles now have equal access and privileges to God as Israel does. Putting that a different way, Jews now have equal access and privileges to God as Gentiles. Both of those things are true. It's the same thing said two different ways. The Gentiles are no less privileged than the Jews. That's what this passage is telling us. Which means that the Jews are no more privileged than the Gentiles. That's an implication of this passage. There are therefore not then two distinct purposes, but one purpose of God and one people of God. And in fact, heaven and earth as... Uh, Chafer makes such a grand distinction between heaven and earth will not even always be separate for eventually heaven and earth will become one. So dispensationalism errs significantly in putting the big picture of the Bible together. And this sort of error will have multiple consequences ranging from confusion to misplaced priorities and values and even to ethics and to biblical morality. It's not a heresy. We need to be clear about that. We have good brothers and sisters who are dispensational. Many who I love and who I respect. But it is an error, nonetheless. It doesn't, dispensationalism, of course, doesn't put someone outside of Christianity. But it does uh, lead to... Uh, it's a fundamental error in putting the big picture of the Bible together, which leads to other errors in terms of working out specifics on a number of issues. And so it leads to, again, confusion, misplaced priorities and values, and uh, even at times to ethics and errors in ethics and biblical morality. And so um, we need to look 
at what this passage in Ephesians 2 says and wrestle with the implications for how we put together the meta-narrative of Scripture. What is it that God is doing? Is it true, as Chafer has said, that God is pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, and another related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved? No, it's not. The second application that we need to take from this <clears throat> is that any kind of any kind of us and them mentality other than recognizing the divinely um, ordained distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ any other distinction is invalid right? there's a and this is not this is not to say I want to nuance this because there's a million ways we could take this to error. Well, if there's no distinction, why don't we have a four-year-old preach next week? Well, okay. In some sense, there are some distinctions. And we, there are other things that God says in Scripture in terms of there are, there's a distinction that there is such a thing as a legitimate form of government that all people have to obey and submit to, both in the state and in the church. Uh, that there are qualifications for those things, that they have purposes, da 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 There are distinctions that we make in some sense. But in terms of uh, spiritual privilege, access to God, dignity of person, when we start to think about these kinds of distinctions, we need to just be real clear that all of us are on equal footing, as has been said, at the base of the cross. All of us. If even Jews and Gentiles, think about this implication. It was a divinely ordained distinction in the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles. God made that distinction. Pardon me, not Ephesians. Exodus chapter 12. Just let me read a section from you here to drive this point home. I mean, we've seen it already in Ephesians 2, but just let me read this section to you. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron... Exodus 12:43 This is the statute of the Passover no foreigner shall eat of it but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it it shall be eaten in one house you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones all the congregation of Israel shall keep it if a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. That's a divinely ordained distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And God has even broken that down. So, if God has broken down that distinction, that division which He Himself ordained, Man-made divisions clearly have no place in the body of Christ or outside of the body of Christ. That we, we ought not to um, consider anyone as somehow a lesser Christian or not having a legitimate claim upon Christ and upon His church by virtue of some man-made distinction or some... Uh, Distinction that we think is important, which God has not said is important in His Word. We divide over things like class. We divide over things like race. 
those are obviously two big ones, but you can, you can follow this train of thought, right? We divide over political parties. There are a number of ways in which we consider someone else to be somehow inferior to us, to somehow have a limited access to God uh, and in comparison with us because of some distinction in them. But what we need to see is that if God has placed Jews and Gentiles at equal, on equal footing at the base of the cross, then God has also placed blacks and whites, rich and poor, Democrats and Republicans, whoever, at the foot of the cross with equal standing before God. Now obviously, again, and this is where I say we've got to nuance a little bit, right? Because again, this isn't to say that, well, you can't tell me I'm in sin, What makes you more spiritual than me? I have equal access to God as you do. Well, yes, you do have equal access to God, but we can still discern and judge that a person is in sin and we can still offer a correction to them. We don't have to therefore say that all beliefs are equally valid or all of these kinds of things, right? But all all we need to recognize is the fundamental equality of all people and the, the fundamental truth that God has granted all people equal access to himself in Christ Jesus. Which means you're not um, less likely, uh, a less likely or a less eligible recipient of grace because you were born on that continent and not this continent. You're not a less likely recipient of grace because you were born in this neighborhood and not that neighborhood. You're not a less likely recipient of grace because you voted this way in that election as opposed to that way in that election. You're not a less likely recipient of grace because you went to this school and not that school. And so on and so forth. This is what we need to understand. The Jew and the Gentile distinction was uh, real and it was valid in the Old Testament time because it was instituted by God. But God has even removed that distinction. Which means that all other distinctions by implication should also disappear from our thinking, disappear from our minds as we consider the gospel, as we consider the church, so on and so forth. Related to this is the idea that churches ought not to be fundamentally united by something other than Christ. You shouldn't have, for example, in the New Testament age, you shouldn't have the Jewish church and the Gentile church. That would be a failure to work out in application what this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 is saying. That you shouldn't have a situation where, you know, here, here we are, uh, you know, a Gentile church and down the road is a Jewish church. That should not be the case in the New Testament. Uh, now, I mean, that doesn't happen to be... A, a significant issue as far as I know in Barbados. But we could think along any other line and say the same thing. What, what are the things that churches rally around other than Christ? And incipient in that is a mentality of us and them. That this church is for this kind of people and not that kind of people. And again, whatever it may be, Right? And I, I'm not confident enough yet on the Beijing situation to speak very prophetically on these matters. But whether it be race, whether it be class, whether it be 
socio-economic uh, situation, whether it be neighborhood-oriented, whatever it may be, we need to recognize that when we come together in Christ, we are all one in Christ. We need to also understand further that, again, as we're trying to nuance here, there are types of distinctions to be made which are still valid. Like, again, not all truth is not relative now that Christ has come. It's not like, well, in the Old Testament, 2 plus 2 equaled 4. But now, I mean, if someone believes that 2 plus 2 equals 3, I mean, Christ has come. We're all one in Christ Jesus. To, to insist otherwise would be to divide brother from brother. Right? That, that would be nonsensical. And so it is with doctrinal matters. We can still make distinctions. We can still acknowledge, you know, this is an error. That's an error. This is truth. That's truth. And we can still... Um, uh, insist on uh, correctness of doctrine, correctness of behavior. We can still correct a brother for sin. It's not divisive to insist on right behavior. It's not divisive to insist on holy living. Neither is it divisive to insist on right doctrine. But this is another point of application. That This is all kind of related here, right? We need to remember that we are one with all the other true gospel preaching churches in Barbados. All of them. Every single one of them. Every church that truly preaches salvation by grace through faith in Christ. That's not mixing works and grace. Like you do do a little bit and Christ does a little bit or you do a little bit and Christ does a lot. But no, look away from yourself. You can't save yourself. Throw yourself at the mercy of Christ and Christ Jesus will save you. Churches that preach that gospel... Our church is full of legitimate brothers and sisters and we are one in Christ Jesus with that. And so we need to understand that um, as we think about types of people, we need to really have the two overarching categories in our head that I mentioned earlier, in Christ and in Adam. We need to have those categories in our head because we need to, A, ourselves, no, have, have I dealt with Christ? Are my sins forgiven? Am I in right standing with God? Am I going to heaven when I die? We need to understand these things and we need to soberly think about these things for ourselves. We need to soberly think about these things as best as we can ascertain for our loved ones. For those who aren't in Christ, we've got to try to be diligent to reach them for Christ. All right? We need to keep those overarching categories in our heads. But underneath those categories, while there's room for making judgments and while there's room for making distinctions and so on and so forth, we need to recognize the fundamental unity that was won by Christ Jesus at the cross for all who belong to Him. Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, black and white, Baptists, Wesleyans, Pentecostals, Nazarenes, you name it, brethren, all in Christ Jesus are one. And we need to really drive that point home. Mark Dever has said, the thing, the thing, singular, that unites all true churches is more significant than the things, plural, which distinguish them from one another. What is the thing that unites all true churches? The gospel. 
the thing that unites all true churches, the blood of Christ. This glorious truth here in this passage that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling Jews and Gentiles both to Him in one body through the cross. That whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So we want to be people who radically who take hold of firmly, firmly take hold of this truth of Scripture and then radically apply it in our lives. That we think clearly and biblically and rightly about the unity of the people of God. Not only Jews and Gentiles, but also all other categories. And understand that fundamental unity that we all share in Christ Jesus.